This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, how will artificial intelligence affect the future of humanity? Now, we can't get a live audience today, but we can ask some big questions via some remote interviewing technology. We're asking today's big question to Professor John Lennox. John is Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at Oxford University and is an internationally renowned author and speaker on the interface of science, philosophy and religion, including his latest book, 2084, which explores artificial intelligence and the future of humanity. And he joins me now. John, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank you very much. It's always a delight to be in Australia, even if it's only virtually. (laughs) Well, you're virtually here, but it's wonderful to have you, John. Now, since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, you appear to have done a lot of online interviews. Do you have any idea of how many you've done? I think I've done around 150, actually. I wrote a little book on the coronavirus pandemic and where is God in a coronavirus world. And there have been over 100 interviews on that. And on on 2084, the book that we're discussing, it's rapidly approaching 50. And uh, that, of course, is very encouraging because, like you, I'm interested in fostering the the big questions. Mm, Excellent. Well, you're an ideal guest for us today, John, and we're delighted that you can join us. Now, you've been doing a lot of interviews. So do you get tired of doing interviews? Rarely, because one of the things that I've discovered about interviews as distinct from giving talks is that they're very greatly, even if the topic's the same. And I found them so varied around the world that everyone is stimulating because I don't really know what's going to come up. What I have noticed is on the very rare occasions now where instead of an interview, I do a talk, people lose interest very much more rapidly. They love the interaction of two people, and I think that's how it should be. So I prefer this way of communication. Excellent. Well, we're delighted that you can be able to communicate today here, John. Now, you do often get a lot of, asked a lot of the same questions about science, philosophy, and religion, though. So do you, how, do you, how, do you, how do you find that? That doesn't disturb me in the slightest, because if the people are coming at these questions for themselves for the first time, then they are new questions for them. And it seems Mm. to me very much like a doctor who has to attend the same disease many, many times and knows exactly maybe how to treat it. Mm. So you don't think that perhaps, given that you do get asked a lot of the same questions, that a robot perhaps could help you answer the questions, you know, Robo-John or something? Not really, because it's good, of course, to have a little bit of what a robot's got inside your own head, and that's a reasonably good memory. (laughs) So that I'm not disparaging the, the technological aids, but I do feel people appreciate the human touch. And uh, it's obvious Mm -hmm. during the coronavirus lockdown how much people miss that human dimension. I'm all for technology, Mm. provided we are in control of it and it's not in control of us. So you don't think then a, a robot could be invented then that could perhaps help us answer the bigger questions of life? We probably, indeed, we have something approximating to that on many Christian websites where you pop in your question and you get an answer that's been carefully thought out. 
So yeah, I don't know whether they've got the robotic stage or the artificial intelligence stage where you would sift through the questions being asked and match them to patterns of questions already answered. So you could see how a narrow AI system might well be very helpful there because I yeah. am, as you've probably seen from my book, very positive about certain aspects of artificial intelligence. I'm not a Luddite at all, but I'm cautious yeah. about other things. So this is the topic of your latest book, John, 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. So John, what made you interested in artificial intelligence? Many things, but I was invited to speak to a large group of Christian leaders in the UK on artificial intelligence and genesis. That is the basic definition of what it means to be human. And I first refused, and then I thought, no, I think I can say some things about genesis. And the more I started to get into it, the more I saw this is a huge topic and it needs a book. And it needs a book not only to deal with this sci-fi side, and that might be slightly pejorative, but also to discuss what AI is and what it isn't, and why there are certain aspects of it we should not only not fear, but we should welcome. Right. So then what exactly is AI? Because there's different understandings of what it is. So how do you understand it? It splits into two basic kinds. There's narrow AI, which is the AI that is working every day and burgeoning all around the world. Now, what is that? It consists of a powerful computer, a large database, and an algorithm that recognizes certain pre-designed patterns. Let me give you an illustration. Say the database is a million pictures of human lungs. They get labeled with the diseases they represent by the top medics in the world. That's the database. Then your x-ray is taken and the computer rapidly compares your x-ray with the million in the database. And it comes out with the nearest match. So it's, it's matching patterns. And it produces saying that your lung disease is likely to be X, Y, or Z. And that kind of technology has reached the stage now where on average, the diagnosis will be better than you get at your local hospital. Mm. And this is being improved all the time and is being used in all kinds of areas of medicine, including uh, the search for a vaccine for COVID-19. So it's very important stuff. But pattern recognition in itself, which is to do with narrow AI, rapidly morphs in a way into facial recognition. Mm. And that, of course, is very useful for police to recognize terrorists or gangsters in a crowd. But as we know from things that are happening, particularly in Xinjiang among the Uyghur people, it also can be used for suppressing and controlling a population and seriously invading privacy. So that's where the moral and ethical questions begin to bite. And I often say that narrow AI is like a knife. A really sharp knife can be used for surgery and it can also be used for murder. So that 
in addition to developing sharp knives, we need to develop ethical principles to use them. And that's the problem. The technology outpaces the ethics by far. So that's narrow AI. Yeah. It's already working. That's the stuff we have to cope with day by day. And then the yeah. other kind, AGI, artificial general intelligence. The easy way to see the difference is this. Narrow AI specializes in doing a single thing that would normally require human intelligence, like reading um, x-rays. Well, it's pat pattern recognition, isn't it? Yeah, pattern recognition. That's right. But the system is not intelligent. That's why it's called artificial intelligence. There's a beautiful paper written by an elderly pioneer who happens to be a Christian. I've met him. And he's he wrote a paper entitled, The Artificial in Artificial Intelligence is Real. In other words, the system is not itself intelligent. But when you look at its output, its output normally requires human intelligence to do. Mm. AGI, on the other hand, is the attempt, the wish, the dream of not only replicating everything a human being can do, but going much beyond it, and hence the transhumanist project. Mm. So then to what extent then could artificial general intelligence then even be called artificial intelligence? Because it's just a der derivation of human intelligence, isn't it? Well, it depends what weight you give to the word artificial, because some people mm. say, look, what we're trying to do is not create intelligence, but simulate it. Now we're simulating it in the limited way in devising a narrow system that'll do one thing. We could possibly simulate it in a much more general way. The difficulty with that is this, that the biggest barrier to serious movement in that direction is consciousness. If something mm. is to be really intelligent, as distinct from only simulating intelligence, then it must be conscious. But no one knows what consciousness is. I said to them, look, until you can tell me what consciousness is, there's no point in talking to me about creating it or making it from silicon or anything else. So that's one of the problems. Mm. So do you think that it's therefore theoretically possible to even create a true artificial intelligence if you can't create, if you can't actually create consciousness? True artificial contradicts one another. <laughs> Sorry, yes, it does. I think it's clearly possible to create artificial intelligence at the level it has been done. I'm not mm. sure that it's going to be able to going to be possible to create artificial general intelligence. The great danger is that people are interested in this in inverse proportion to the evidence there is for its truth. People love speculation. They love sci-fi and all this mm. kind of stuff. And indeed, I was led to writing the book partly by science fiction, but I would call it good science fiction. It's what I got from C.S. Lewis many years ago in two of his books, one, not science fiction, the abolition of man, and the other, that hideous strength, where he thought about what it would mean for scientists to separate, so to speak, the human brain from biology and trying to keep it going by other means. And he makes this chilling mm. statement that 
if scientists were able to do that, what they would be making is an artifact, not a human being. And he has this sentence which goes roughly like this, the final conquest of science would be the abolition of man. And it's that that concerns me because some people like Yuval Noah Harari, uh, who wrote the book Homo Deus, which is all about this artificial general intelligence, they seem to think that there are really no holes barred because if you take an atheist view, you tend to think, well, why not? Why don't we just, if it can mm. be done, let's do it. Mm. So well, how will that then lead to the abolition of humanity or the future of humanity being abolished? Here comes the speculation. And mm -hmm. what you discover is when you're thinking of transhumanism, and that's simply the project to go beyond the human, there are various scenarios set up, not only by sci-fi writers, which you'd understand. Our astronomer royal, Lord Rees, for example, is uh, says some very interesting things. One of the things that really struck me was that he said we need to really be mindful of an unprecedented kind of change that could emerge within a few decades. Human beings themselves, their mentality, their physique could become malleable through the deployment of genetic modification and cyborg technologies. This is a game changer. And then he says this, we can have zero confidence that the dominant intelligences a few centuries hence will have any emotional resonance with us, even though they may have an algorithmic understanding of the way we behaved. In other words, there's expectation on one of one of our top scientists that we are going to change the nature mm. of human beings. And that is a chilling prospect because the controls aren't there. And the ethical problems, Robert, are absolutely major because they become rapidly international. And policing things mm. internationally is something our world has not been very good at. Yeah, well, you raise some of these questions in your book in 2084, and hence you've outlined the issue of surveillance and control, much like the novel 1984, hence perhaps the title of your book, 2084. So is it inevitable, therefore, that big data will lead to big brother? The point is big data has already become big brother. You see, George Orwell's book, 1984, or well past 1984, and we are seeing big data being used in a big brother communist society in China in a very big way indeed. Now, we mustn't rush into assuming that this is only characteristic of communist societies. It's increasingly characteristic of the West. And in a very chilling article, about the use of big data, particularly in personal surveillance of the Uyghur minority, the Chinese writer said, but the West needs to look out because all these technologies are available in the West. The only difference is they're not yet under the control of a totalitarian regime. Although we are moving very rapidly, one of our leading police Chief said this is exactly what we need in the United Kingdom. Not only, by the way, facial recognition, but last week they were talking about facial recognition that detects emotional attitudes. 
So it's a huge problem. So I call that surveillance communism. But I also in the book talk about a kind of equivalent of that in the West, which is surveillance capitalism. So we're all we're all participating that in that already. Yes, we are with our smartphones that are tracking us, and we wear them voluntarily. But what is not often realised is the information that we're feeding into them. Say to buy the latest Amazon book that we want yesterday. Twenty eighty four, I'm sure. Oh, isn't it? absolutely, yeah. And I would encourage people <laughs> to go for that. The point is that the data collected is way beyond what is necessary to complete that purchase. And it's being sold on without our permission to third parties, to commercial enterprises. And we're sleepwalking into it. And there appears to be no control because if a thing is desirable, then sometimes it's unforeseen consequences just slip by unnoticed until it's far too late. But surely just better regulation would help this, wouldn't it? Of course it would. But getting better regulation is easier said than done. The ethical issue is a huge one because mm. the problem is that human beings have got a tendency to rebel against ethical norms, and that comes originally, as I understand it, from a rebellion against God. And in order to behave mm. ethically, it's not enough to push a, a set of laws in front of people. That can lead to depression if they're sensitive. They have to receive a power to live. And of course, that is where the Christian gospel, for me, offers not only a solution, but the only credible one. Mm. You've just mentioned the Christian message just now, John, but how can God be better? Because uh, when it comes to particularly surveillance, uh, isn't that exactly what happens in the Christian message? Because in the Old Testament part of the Bible, in Psalm 139, we learn how God watches all things and knows all things about humans. It's a bit like a, a big brother surveillance in some sense. You know, in the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? So the psalmist talks about wherever he goes, God's there. So isn't this the same issue as the constant surveillance of big brother driven by big data? So how is the God of the Bible different? I'm smiling because, you know, the last person that put that question to me was the late Christopher Hitchens in the Edinburgh <laughs> Festival. Well, thank you for connecting me in the same sentence to Christopher Hitchens. But no, it's a question that many people ask, you see, and, and he said this is a horrible idea. He, he talks about God being a kind of North Korean dictator watching you all the time. Mm. And I said, Peter, that's a very diseased view. You know, I said, I've got a wife who watches me all the time. And uh, that's a marvelous thing. And I'm very glad she exists. Why? Because she loves me. And I said, what you've left out of that equation is you can watch over someone because you hate them and because you want to detect something wrong in their behavior, that they're not living up the norms of the state. But you can watch them because you care for them and love them as a mother looks after her children or a wife or a husband look after their spouses. And the revelation of God in the Bible, particularly what you quote, Psalm 139, uh, which is one of the favorite Psalms for myself and my wife, that sense in life that God is interested in me, he's watching over me, not to control me and knock me down and suppress me, but rather to enable me to flourish 
and give me a friendship in which I can flourish. And that's where I'd come back mm. to this, that the answer to the negative surveillances in capitalism and communism is the divine surveillance, the one that you mentioned, that if we open ourselves up to that, that spells freedom. Uh, Jesus said, I, I come to give life and I come to give it in abundance. And uh, people who met him and saw that he could penetrate into their innermost thoughts didn't resent it, but rather welcomed it because they could tell that it was coming from a heart of love. And that makes all the difference in the world. There's surveillance mm. for control and there's surveillance for love and flourishing. So you just outlined perhaps some of the, the big challenges that are faced with this big question that in order to properly harness AI, that there needs to be a moral dimension, but that's difficult with the, the human spirit because there's a human proclivity towards some sort of self-interest and not necessarily caring for others. So, so would that be a fair sort of summation of where you see the future of AI heading? A very fair summation, and it applies in virtually every area of life. We can't get involved in anything that involves society without having to face ethical questions. And it is praiseworthy, of course, that some of the leading AI players, including Elon Musk and others, are setting up ethical principles. But if you are not dealing with the basic human problem, it's pretty clear from history that you cannot create utopia, even an AI utopia, by bypassing the problem of evil and sin in human beings. And that again is why I believe the Christian message is the only one on the market that deals with this problem, it faces it head on, and perhaps it's about time that we revisited the biblical diagnosis and its solution. So, John, we'll get onto the solution in just a moment, but uh, one of the big claims of those who are advocating for AI is that it'll actually overcome, you just mentioned some of the, the human condition in some sense, but it'll actually overcome death itself. Like, is death then simply a technical problem that can be overcome with technology? The notion is a very deep and ancient one. It's the quest for immortality. And when people raise this to me, I just say, well, they're too late. And they respond with some puzzlement. And I said, look, the whole central message of the Christian faith is based on the fact that the death problem, the human death problem, has been solved that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. God raised him from the dead 20 centuries ago. And it's not only a solution for him, it's a solution for everybody that's prepared to repent of the mess that they're making of their own lives and those of others may be, and trust him as Savior and Lord because they're promised that one day they will be raised from the dead. And of course, that mm. means that bypasses and outshines and eclipses any vague promise of being uploaded onto silicon or into <laughs> some mm. other state, that the promise is there. And what I say is this, look, there's no credible evidence for the artificial general intelligence hope uh, for 
upgrading humans and all that, but there is credible mm. evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's why I stay there. Because mm. in the Bible, there is a passage in 2 Timothy, which is one of the letters the Apostle Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, which speaks on the future of the, of the humanity. And in 2 Timothy 1, uh, Paul speaks about the grace of God, and he says, This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So, John, this passage actually talks about this immortality. So perhaps this is, is this the, the message that you're saying uh, is the, the, the heart of the Christian message, which is different from what the AI project offers? Oh, I think absolutely. And that's the centre of the of the Christian gospel, that life and immortality, where are you going to find light on them? Well, not in the techno world. You're going to find light on them in the one who brought life and immortality. And he proved that by rising from the dead. God raised him from the dead and gave him glory, as Scripture says. And mm. therefore, the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy and encouraging the next generation to get on with this same message, he was absolutely confident because he knew in his heart that that shadow that lies over every life, that is physical death, that there was a solution to it, not that we wouldn't physically die. Paul did. He was actually executed but that there is something that we receive when we trust Christ, eternal life, which transcends death and therefore fills your life with that hope. Mm. So do you think that this offer here would be threatened if humans did discover eternal life through artificial intelligence? Well, the definition of eternal life, their notion would be very different. What they are thinking of is the maintenance in some form or other of the life they've already got. What Christ offers is something far bigger. Eternal life is not just living forever as we have done. It's a new kind of life. It's a life granted by God through his spirit. It's God's life. And so it is eternal and indestructible by definition. So we're talking about two completely different things. So, John, how will artificial intelligence affect the future of humanity? That's very hard to say. It will do some very good things. So we're going to have marvelous uh, advances, I think, particularly in the field of medicine, we're going to have massive negatives in the increasing surveillance of our populations. Mm. There are very big issues to be faced. Mm. Well, let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to the big question, how will artificial intelligence affect the future of humanity? From 2 Timothy 1.10. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, Professor John Lennox. My pleasure. Goodbye. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions.